Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Always grateful that you spend time with us, as in Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. And you can find us at Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, or... Reach out, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. The trial has begun of Alec Murdoch, and he has, of course, been charged with murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie. And Seton is in Walterboro, South Carolina, the low country where the trial is going on. Hello, Seton. Hello. Thanks for being down there this week. We, in our last episode, thought that we were not going to have a seat inside the courtroom, at least a a permanent assigned seat, as opposed to waiting for the uh, drawing. And uh, we have one now. Yeah, it was great. The first day we did not get one, but the second day, the clerk of court, who is amazing, reached out and said that we got a seat. So we were very thankful. And so Monday we weren't in, you weren't in mainly because you're there, uh, but we were able to listen to it. It was only audio because the cameras were not allowed because Judge Newman did not want to have them show the faces of the jurors. Now, they were allowed when there was motions and things like that. So they brought in this, uh, hundreds of jurors were potentially going to see this trial. And by the time you went, in on Tuesday was narrowed down a little bit, but explain what your, I guess, what, three pods? Was there three pods of, or four pods or something of, of, of jurors? So they split the jurors up into kind of groups because there were so many called and they kind of started off with basically the statutory questions. There were a whole bunch, you know, if you were caring for a young child, you were exempt or an elderly person, and also just basic questions if you were a citizen and knew how to uh, read and write uh, the English language, that that sort of thing. Uh, so there was, those were pretty much just standard questions. And then they went on to the question of, do you know anything about this case? And it would be amazing, and somebody in that area did not know anything about this worldwide international murder trial. So I imagine when Judge Newman mentioned that there, does he say, I guess he would say, stand if you've heard anything about it and right, everybody if stands? They anything about it. And the session that I sat in on Tuesday, they had the final session. Uh, there were nine people who, who, who didn't know anything about it, which I would think in that area, you would basically have to yeah. not listen to any sort of media or talk to your neighbors or anything not to know anything about it. But there were a few that did not know anything about it. And I did read in one of the papers, or I'm not really sure, that one of the groups, there was not one person who didn't know anything about it. That would make sense, right? And then they ask about specifics, uh, like, did they say, okay, did you watch Dateline? Did you listen to Impact of Influence? What, how did that work? So for everyone who stood, they had to go through, they went through each individual person and ask them where they received their information. And it was all over the place. Some people received podcasts, um, local news, newspapers, internet, uh, 
gossip. Uh, one man actually said my wife, yeah. which was got a few giggles. Uh, just people were all over the place. Uh, documentaries from lots of different sources. At one point, they go through the potential eyewitnesses. I there's about two hundred, some two hundred fifty, something like that, and that takes Judge Newman. I saw, I think, Drew Tripp from uh, one of the TV stations down there. He said it was something like 15 minutes to read the eyewitnesses. Is that what it was like? It was. It was a long process. And some they would identify as people from SLED or other law enforcement agencies. But it it was a very long list of people. We're going to break down some of those eyewitnesses in an episode coming up. We're efforting that right now. Uh, Also, they asked about related to Murdoch's or other people uh, that they listed. You even had some Cousin Eddie relations, I think you said. First, they asked about relations to the Murdoch family. And a a lot of people, it's a small area, were distantly related. One man actually said, you know, they asked if he could set aside his opinions. And he said no, so he was dismissed. Uh, And then they went over this long list of potential witnesses, which I guess if you're named on this list of witnesses, it doesn't necessarily mean you are definitely going to be testifying. It's just who might be testifying. Um, So of this list, obviously a ton of people had different connections. They had maybe worked for them or just lots of different things. And so anyone had to kind of go through their connections. And I want to go back to uh, Cousin Eddie. You said there was a Cousin Eddie connection there? Yeah, there were several people in the pool who knew Cousin Eddie. So I actually found that really interesting that just the amount of connections, and I think it speaks to the size of this community. I think there's like 30,000, I believe, uh, in in Colleton County. I also want to touch on the outside of the trial, the amount of people there the the vibe the energy if you will uh, the food trucks what was that scene like well since we're still in the jury selection process i don't think we fully know the amount of people who may or may not show up for this trial there were a ton of media but I, the general public is not allowed in at this point so we didn't really see huge crowds i was able to find parking there were a few protesters out um it wasn't really totally clear on what they were protesting. Uh, the food trucks, there weren't long lines. There could be in the coming days when we're out of the jury selection process. And if you do hit up the food trucks, I would highly recommend the brisket chili. It was absolutely delicious. Hmm. Anything else you want to hit on thoughts on the jury selection before we move in to some of the motions? It seemed to be heavily blue collar, more so then, I mean, I guess representative of the community, it mm-hmm. seemed to be more males than females. Um, that was just the section that I saw. So we think it's narrowed down to somewhere around 100, maybe a little over 100 jurors, but they decided to put that off until Wednesday. So Tuesday afternoon, they decided to hear some motions. What happened there? I guess the defense and prosecution first had come to some sort of agreement about this spatter evidence that they would take it in the trial kind of as it came. 
and uh, it wouldn't be introduced in opening statements. That so it wasn't completely tossed the blood spattered T-shirt that Tom Bevel had looked at, but it can't be used in the open. So when it comes up, this will be heard again by Judge Newman to decide to be used or not. Right. It will just be decided if it's admissible as the trial progresses. You also said you spoke to an attorney that was at the trial about what that means in the big picture. He felt like this was a big risk. He said agreeing not to mention it in opening arguments gave up blood evidence, which was going to make it difficult to appeal to the Supreme Court and thought that maybe there was a possibility that it was because the experts weren't there in court that day and they oh. didn't hear it in pre-trial motions the same way we'll talk about in a, in, a, in a minute, the ballistics evidence. Okay. All right. So uh, we will get to ballistics in a second. There was also talk about uh, the motive and the motive, as we had heard in another hearing, the state was going to say the motive was the land deals gone bad and all the financial problems that Alec was having and killing Maggie and Paul bought him sympathy and bought him time to try to sort that out. Now, as we discussed when they were making that argument in that motion, it's a reason to bring in what they call past bad deeds and be able to talk about all the, the people that Alec stole from. So what about motive as it comes to evidence in this uh, ruling and in this motion about opening statement? Well, there was a lot of talk about this upcoming hearing in the boating accident case about uh, whether you could admit financial evidence. They, Mark Tinsley had filed a motion, I guess, to try to get some picture of Alec Murdoch's financial situation. And the defense kind of fired back at that and said, you know, there really hadn't been a guilty verdict against anyone in this civil litigation. So it maybe you might get a financial statement, but you're not going to get a lot of information. And this is just what the defense is saying. And they kind of go on to say that it was a you know big leap for him to have this financial problems and then to go home and butcher his wife, use the word butcher, and he says that they're and you know shoot his son in the head, but there was not a shred of evidence that there was any problems between them. Now, I also want to mention, because uh, you were referring to the trial about the beach boating fatality that was scheduled to go just a couple of days after the murders. That's that's what you were talking about during that. Yes. Okay. Next up, uh, video discussion. What's that about in the motion, uh, Seton? appears to be these two different videos. We have one video, which was taken around 8.44, which shows Paul, I guess, you know, talking to his mother. There was a, a, a chicken that one of the dogs had gotten, and Alec can be heard in the background. And I guess Fitz News and actually Eric Bland on the show Court TV, where you were on last night with him, you could he, he talked about this video, and I guess some people have seen this video, and they are saying that maybe the convivial nature of the conversation that the defense has said is not entirely accurate. That it wasn't so 
nice. Right. That that maybe it wasn't this big loving family that the defense wants to portray. And the other video that we're is the Snapchat. Right. And this, I guess, was taken around, what, 756? I think so, yes. But we know that there's been a petition to have witnesses from Snapchat and Google appear at the hearing. So I guess we will find out exactly the nature of these videos. Yeah, and the 756 one, you you wonder what's in that because it's so far, you know, it's like an hour before the murder probably occurred. So that'll be interesting. Something we both found interesting when they were talking about the motive was Harputlian mentioning something about a ball game. Yeah, it was weird. He said that Paul and Alec were having a good time at a ball game earlier in the day, the day that they that Paul was killed. And I don't find that I, I don't see the the time frame where that would have been possible. He was at no. work. He was confronted at work. We know that we had heard Paul was working that day. Yeah, John Marvin said that Paul had worked in his heavy equipment business throughout the day and it was his understanding that he was going back to Moselle to have dinner. Right. And we know that they, the three of them had dinner. We, that's at least what his attorneys originally said. And then that Paul went off to somewhere and Maggie went to the dog run and, and all that. And then, uh, Alec took a nap, uh, and, and woke up and couldn't find them and went to see his mom. I'm, I'm shortening that, but that's always been the word. So I don't know where this ball game is coming from or where, when it would have occurred. It's, yeah, when it could have possibly happened. It, right. it, I mean, we'll, we'll know as these yeah. witnesses progress. Hopefully, we'll, it won't be 256, but there may. Right, right. Uh, next motion was, I thought, pretty huge. It's something we had not heard before. We had always heard that it was a shotgun and a rifle that killed the two, but they got into the casings and the projectiles that are around Maggie's body. Explain. Well, they had a pretrial hearing to determine if this evidence was going to be admissible. So Paul Greer, who was with SLED, was there to testify, and they did this pretrial hearing, and he gave all of his credentials, which seemed pretty impressive. So what we have seen is that there were these shell casings that were found around Maggie's body after her murder. And they seem to be linked to other shell casings that were found around the property in other places that were maybe from a previous time. You know, there was a, it's a shooting range and a few other places. And we've heard that the gun used to kill Maggie was an AR. And this expert is linking ammunition from the AR using that was used to kill Maggie to ammunition that was found in other places. And whether it was cycled, they called cycled through the same rifle. And you were mentioning the AR. There's a, a bit of tech, technical terms that becomes a little bit of a problem because there's a blackout rifle and then there's the AR-15, but they are in essence the same type of gun. And the word is Alec had bought two blackout rifles at some point. And one of them he gave to Paul. One of these blackout rifles 
disappeared. The state says it's missing. We are hearing from the defense that it was stolen, but they believe that the ammunition, the ballistics, the uh, shells, casings that they found throughout the property and including around Maggie are all identical, which would mean that rifle had been used on Moselle before Maggie was killed. And the defense brought up that, A, we don't have this weapon, but other issues like if the weapon that these were fired from were the same lot, maybe they would have the exact same markings. Um, And also they were questioning the science of this because of the fact that we don't have current studies on this particular weapon. I kind of felt like that was maybe a little bit in the weeds. Yes. And they, and they, uh, it didn't matter in the end what the state had to say because judge Newman said, Paul Greer and his testimony, it's in. Yep. It's in. So then it'll be a battle of experts once he gets on stand and how much weight the jury will put on that science. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in, and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Now let's bring in our legal analyst, former DA and former defense attorney. has been on both sides of the aisle. He is John Snyder. Good day, John. Good rainy day to you as well, sir. <laughs> Seton. <laughs> I forgot my raincoat and it is about to rain here too. So I'm I'm probably going to have to hopefully stop by a store and get an umbrella. Get a, um, <laughs> so I want to start with, we have this very expansive witness list. Two questions for you about the witness list. One can witnesses attend the trial? We know several attorneys have been named, also family members. So I wanted to ask you if witnesses can attend the trial and also if there is an obligation for witnesses to call a witness if they've been named on this list. Okay, so on can witnesses attend the trial? And the typically the answer is no, with the exception of the parties and on behalf of the state law enforcement, which would technically be their the, the client or the party in the courtroom. So 
it can be defense lawyers and their client, and then it can be the prosecution and their law enforcement officers. Now, the defense will raise, yeah, you know, may raise an objection if there's like 30 line officers in there all listening to testimony. They may make us think about that, but there'll there'll be a few uh, officers sitting in court the entire time the case is going on. But my question is, though, like, say uh, his brother was called, his son was called, or is on the list, I should say, not called, because we don't know if it'll be called. They can't sit in at any point during the trial? They will be sequestered until after they have been called and both sides agree not to recall them. So, well, I, oh, um, sorry. so, so a, a brother, a brother might be a witness. He cannot sit in there during other testimony and then he can come in and appear, uh, testify. And then if the state and the defense say that he wouldn't be called any further, then he could come sit in the courtroom just like any other member of the public. Well, and I think we should mention yesterday that Alex's sister did attend the hearing. Uh, to I, I'm assuming to be there to support him. I did see her, and she went over, and they seemed to share a few moments of together. Yeah, but she's 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 not a witness. She's not on the witness list. She won't be a part of the trial. The uh, question I also have is: some witnesses are listed as subpoenaed and some are not. What does that mean? So some are, have agreed to come and show up no matter what. And so maybe a subpoena hasn't been issued yet. Some are prospective witnesses that they may or may not call, but they want to give the other side notice that they might call them. Let's move into, so we have a hundred qualified, a little over a hundred qualified jurors. What's the next step, and what do you think the defense and prosecution are looking for in a juror? So the, so the judge is going through the, the joint questionnaire. He's asking all the questions that the judge wants to ask, and then he's also going to be asking questions that they have requested to be, to be asked. And then when he is done with the panel— each side will, or, you know, the, the state will get to make their challenges. And then um, depending on how he does it, they will then call new members to the jury or they will let, they'll let the defense make their challenges after the first round and then seat, you know, however many new jurors are needed based on the challenges of the state and the defense. Um, if I am the state, I am looking for witnesses that are going to be kind of out outraged by the atrocity of, of the crime scene. People that are um, seem maybe a little more law and order uh, people that in their Answers have a, you know, a, a, maybe a bent towards law enforcement. And if I'm defense, I'm, I'm looking for kind of independent thinkers that are not, you know, 
just because the state says something should be one way, they, they, they don't automatically take that. Um, people that maybe have more of an inclination towards, you know, suspect of state action. So it could be, you know, could be it could fit any number of profiles and then there's a whole subset of juror challenge issues if it appears either side is using race or gender as a as a rationale for selection um you know the other side can raise that and and kind of attack the the dismissal of a particular juror and and the and the race issue would be specifically what they call a Batson motion. And the Batson motion is that you, that you can't use race in the dismissal of a juror. Okay. Let's talk about the potential of motive being an issue as far as what, when, and how it can be mentioned. What was your question about that, Seton? No, I was wondering if I mean, my understanding is it it couldn't be introduced in opening argument, but I, I could be completely wrong. So I wanted to ask you about that. So so an opening argument is supposed to be confined to what the evidence will show. So in an opening argument, you have very little leeway, although as much leeway will be attempted to be taken as, as can be. But, but you will be confined to say, our evidence will show that that man sitting in that seat right there committed murder. The evidence will show you will hear from witnesses X, Y, and Z. And each, each thing that those witnesses testified to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that man sitting in that chair is guilty. Then the defense will get up and say, the evidence is lacking and they'll have some, you know, they'll, they'll talk about smoke and mirrors. They'll have, they'll have some, you know, clever way to capture the argument, something to, for the jury to remember, but, it, but it's not this kind of sweeping, like, why, why would he do that? That, that is not an appropriate subject for opening argument. Uh, when they talk about this motive, it's all about the financial crimes is how, the state is going to pitch it. And I assume the reason they want to pitch it like that is so they can bring in the financial crimes because you need a reason, right? You can't just do what I think it's called acts of past misdeeds. So they want to bring motive in, right? Prior bad acts. Prior bad acts. Sorry, it was way off. Um, Prior bad acts. (laughs) So that's why they want to make the motive. Because we've talked about the state doesn't need motive but it sure helps and it helps you to bring in the financial crimes, right? Yeah. I mean, so the behavior in isolation, it is not normal for a husband to shoot both his wife and his son in a violent manner. I guess shooting someone is the only way to do it is violent, but you know, like the crime scene description is not in line with, normal familial relationships. And so the state is going to seek to bring in evidence of why would someone do such an awful thing? Okay. Uh, Seton, you and John talked about the shirt with the alleged spatter on it. So what were you asking John about last night, Seton? 
Well, I was asking him why both sides would come to this agreement so that it couldn't even be discussed in opening arguments. Well, the state probably really wants to have this evidence admitted. And the judge has been very clear that he has not made a decision yet on its admissibility and that he will make that decision once the state tries to use it. So going back to what I just said about what's appropriate for opening argument, opening argument says the evidence will show X, Y, and Z. And so here you have a judge basically saying, I don't know that that's going to be part of your evidence. So you probably don't want to argue about it. And, and the defense is saying that's fine, your honor, because either it's going to be admitted and they're going to rip it, you know, 20 ways to Sunday, or the judge is not going to admit it. And that was the one, um, you know, biometric link of the defendant to the crime. And so now your crime goes from being, you know, having some kind of scientific evidence to being completely circumstantial with no, you know, connection between the two. Uh, we talked about the ballistic ruling already in the podcast, but John Snyder, is there something that you want to comment on about that? Ballistics is a science. And so typically in a crime scene, you have a casing or a shell, something that connects what is, you know, what, what, what went through a human being to cause their death, the, the shell or casing that it came from is at the scene. You, you don't have that here. What, what you have here is other shells that have the same kind of projectile or, or pellets that were found at, at the murder scene, but they don't have the one that was actually fired from the purported gun. And, and so when you fire um, a bullet from a gun, a, a pistol, not a shotgun, it creates, there, there's, every gun has kind of its own fingerprint, a little, what they call striation. It's, and it's the way the, the projectile turns as it's leaving the barrel. So you can match up what's in somebody's body to the gun that it came from based on that. They don't have that here. Well, they have the, wait, they have the, they do have casings that were found by Maggie and they, that, that match with casings that were found on the range and other places. They just don't have the weapon. They don't have the weapon. So they can't, they can't confirm that that, that particular casing came from a weapon that was being held by the defendant. And so this is again, circumstantial evidence, you know, I can, if I see it snowing, that's direct evidence. If I see the gun firing, that's direct evidence. If I see snow on the ground, I can testify that it snowed. But and, and so what the state's going to say is we don't have the gun, but we have the same type of everything. We have everything here at the crime scene, but the gun. Therefore, that's sufficient evidence to show that he fired the gun that killed her. Gotcha. Yes. If you're looking at what we know now and things come out, obviously, throughout the course of the trial, there's going to be witnesses, there's going to be more science. We don't know what's on some of these videos. And, and your mind may have changed over the last few weeks as we find out new information. Who is having a, who's feeling confident right now if either side 
is feeling confident, who do you think it would be? There is always a nervousness on, on, I don't care how long you've, you've been practicing, right before trial starts, you're anxious. And it is, it's adrenaline. It is, um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's, it's the apex of a trial lawyer's uh, career to be doing trials like this. And so with some of the rulings, the defense is probably feeling pretty good with the major caveat of we only know what has been reported. Right, sure. There may be a whole treasure trove of evidence that we haven't seen that hasn't accidentally wandered out into the public eye that is is you know clear and convincing and beyond a reasonable doubt even as to that Alec committed those murders. We we don't know. And so it, it would be easy to say, oh, the defense is winning because of these rulings. But again, the state's not going to waste time trying somebody of murder if they don't have a strong case. John Snyder, thanks for hanging out, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Look forward to seeing how this progresses. All righty, Seton. Uh, you wanted to, what were you just saying? You want to talk about music? Yes, I keep getting, uh, all right. So I changed someone. We've had a couple people asking us to change back to our original music. We changed it because, I don't know, it just started driving me crazy, the original <laughs> music. And then, and I don't know that I love our new music either. And my son was writing some music, but I think it's too late and we are too busy because we are burning the candle at both ends. You have a full-time job. <laughs> I am a I, life. I am probably reservationist and <laughs> a podcaster. So we don't know that we will get the music changed and we're sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that we changed it at one point, but anyway, yeah, that's, we'll put that on the long list of things. Uh, we do yeah. appreciate all the insight and I've got some emails to get to maybe next time and some really great, uh, input and observations you've made and you can send to Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. We will be at the trial as much as possible. And, uh, we appreciate friend that you're spending time with us. Murdoch podcast on Facebook and, uh, Murdoch podcast.com. The podcast ended up on Good Morning America. How about that? Oh, my gosh. My mom called me. She was so excited. I was actually on my way driving to the trial. She's like, oh, my gosh. I just saw your podcast that, you know, the image that shows up when you're looking for it. And <laughs> she was I, she she was very excited. Was as, I, as was I. <laughs> I, I uh, have been on court TV almost every night. At Nancy Gray show and. Uh, News Nation, thanks to all those people. Vinny Paladon, closing arguments on Court TV. And last night, or what no, night? I don't even, I'm losing track of nights, but it was Tuesday night. I get my computer set up. I don't have my charger. I blame my kids. And it was a crazy <laughs> time. Uh, but uh, I'll hopefully be on uh, a bunch of times coming up, including in Walterboro. So there we go. We are out. So grateful, friend. So grateful that you listened. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, podcast listeners. I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.